0: Our text this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Um, I'd like to do as we've done, not on every Sunday here in Hebrews, but on many of them. Let's do as we've done before. I'll read the text. Let's stand together and give reverence to God's word and pay attention to the text as a whole. And then we can take it apart piece by piece. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning now at verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Father, we pray for a blessing now upon your word that you'd help us to connect with this inspired writing by your Holy Spirit. Do it now by your presence among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it's helpful for us from time to time to just acknowledge the whole general context and flow of this letter to the Hebrews. Basically, Hebrews was written to Christians from a Jewish background who lived in the first century, in the early days of the apostolic church. And these Christians from a Jewish background were being tempted to either give up on their Christian life or to retreat back to what you might call a mushy middle. Now, for them, the mushy middle was sort of a safe practice of Judaism that would focus more on Moses and uh, ceremonial things rather than an out and out following of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I really sense that this connects with us in the present age because today, as Christianity becomes more and more the object of mockery and scorn in our culture, there are people who just don't want to endure that. And let's face it, it's sort of a difficult thing to be endured. I don't know if you've ever been mocked or made the object of scorn because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'll tell you, it's really not that pleasant. And in the face of that kind of unpleasantry, there's sort of a tendency for us to just kind of want to say, look, I'll avoid it. And I won't come out and out and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I live my life for him. Instead, we might sort of retreat into our own mushy middle, which isn't really so much, you know, Judaism without the Messiah. But for us, it might be saying something like this. Well, I'm not a Christian, really, but I'm spiritual. Isn't that a much safer thing to say in our culture today than to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You see the difference? But you see, the writer of Hebrews won't do that, won't allow us to do that, I should say. He holds up who Jesus is and how Jesus works in our life so powerfully, so compellingly before us that he's just saying, no, you're not going to retreat back to some mushy middle. Fly the flag high for Jesus Christ. In light of all of who he is, in light of all that he's done for you, you've got to live an out and out life for Jesus Christ. Now, previously in Hebrews chapter two, the writer of the Hebrews described for us so powerfully, so beautifully, this great union that we have with Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus just sort of stands in the middle of us as a great big group. And he says, here are my brothers and sisters. I am one with them. They are one with me. And we all come before God, the father. And that great phrase from last week, if you remember it, where he said he is not ashamed to call us brethren. That amazing. He's not ashamed, even though sometimes I would be ashamed of my own walk before him. He says, no, father, this one belongs to me. And we are part of one great group now. The first word of chapter three is therefore, because it draws us back in light of this great union, this great company that we have with Jesus Christ. Check this out. Verse one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. I see in this first verse of chapter three, two very important things. The first very important thing is he talks to us about who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is what he explains. He says, you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're attached to him, if you're joined with him, first of all, he calls you. Did you see it there in verse one? Holy brethren. I don't know if you've ever called yourself that. In Jesus Christ, that's what you are. You are holy and you are part of the brethren. You are a brother. You are a sister in this great company before God, the father. And here we are standing together with our elder brother, Jesus Christ, saying, Lord, here we are. We belong to you. You are holy. You are a brother or a sister. But notice the next phrase he uses there in verse one, where he says partakers of the heavenly calling. You have a share in an eternal heavenly calling. And this is so important for us, isn't it? I mean, I think about it. I think about the transitory nature of human life. I think about it, how life seems to last like a vapor. I think about our dear sister, right? Lori, who passed away. And she passed away just yesterday. And there she is now in it. But you know what? She's a partaker of that heavenly calling. And you and I attached to her, so are we. We're still connected. We're not separated by that. We still have this connection and we're connected even with brothers and sisters who may have been with us now, but we are now uh, set apart just for some period of time. I think about, I think about all we hear this morning. Keisha's going off to Haiti. The Fitzgeralds are going off to Red Bluff. The, the, the Seabirds are going off to their own place in the Caribbean. They're going off to their own thing. Here we go. Each are going our own ways. Nevertheless, we are all still connected now by this heavenly calling. We are partakers together of a heavenly calling. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that if you really consider that, that lifts your hopes and your aspirations up. When I consider that Jesus looks to me and he says, you're a holy brother or sister. When Jesus looks to me and he says, you're a partaker of a heavenly calling. Suddenly, I don't feel like giving up so much anymore. Suddenly, I feel like, yes, Lord, you want me to continue on and I want to continue on. That's the first aspect of verse one. Now, here's the second aspect of verse one, where the writer of the Hebrews speaks of what we are to do in light of the previous paragraphs. OK, this is who you are. Now, this is what you're supposed to do. Look at it there in verse one. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, first of all, he gives you some one there. There. The apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle, who is that? Of course, it's Jesus. Now, don't be thrown by the word apostle. I don't know if you ever considered this, but here in Hebrews chapter three, verse one, Jesus is called an apostle. I can see how this might be immensely confusing for somebody. well wait a minute. Didn't Jesus have 12 apostles? Wasn't Paul an apostle? I thought they were the apostles and Jesus was Jesus. How can Jesus be an apostle? Please understand something. This ancient Greek word that we translate apostle, by the way, can I make you an expert in Greek just now in one easy lesson? Here you go. The ancient Greek word that we translate apostle is apostolos. Matter of fact, we don't even really translate the word. We just sort of transliterate it into English. If you wanted to translate the word, it would read much more something like ambassador or somebody who's been given a special message. Now, of course, that was true in a very special way for those 12 men and the Apostle Paul and a few others in the first century that Jesus himself chose. That was true for what we normally think of as the apostles. But was not our savior, Jesus Christ, a special ambassador sent from heaven to be a special messenger? And in that sense, he was a greater apostle than any merely human apostle that's walked this earth. So he is our great apostle, but not only an apostle, but what also the high priest of our confession. In other words, Jesus stands there as a great priest representing God to man and representing man to God and that amazing priestly function. There he is, Jesus, our apostle and high priest. But do you see the command, something that we're told to do? What does he tell us to do? Consider. Do you know what it means to consider, to consider in the sense that it means in Hebrews chapter three, verse one simply means to intently look at, to look at with purpose and meaning to analyze, to sort of take it and to turn it over in your head, to think of this deeply. God wants you to consider Jesus. Now, I don't mean consider him just well, consider Jesus. Yes or no. No, it means to put your attention upon him and to meditate upon him. Friends, this is a very powerful and often neglected. It's so simple that we often neglect it. But we need to just look to Jesus and consider who he is and what he's done for us. Now, hopefully, that's part of what we do here on a Sunday morning. We gather together and in the songs that we sing, these sort of prayers that we offer up to God in song in the songs that we sing together, should we not be considering Jesus and our life with him? That's what we're doing. In the message that I bring to you, do we not just open up our eyes to the word of God and for a period of time just seek to consider Jesus? Now, this is so important that you have a time regularly. And if I could say, I, I don't mean this to sound th- the more times a week you can do it, the better to just say, I'm going to shut out every distraction of the world. And I want to consider Jesus. I just imagine I don't know this to be a fact, but let me just you know, get hypothetical here, although it's probably not very hypothetical. It's probably a fact. I bet there's been a lot of phones vibrating just in the few minutes I've been talking. You've been getting emails, you've been getting social media updates, you've been getting things to connect you to an outside world. There's all this business going on outside the world. And I'm not saying that that's unimportant. I'm not saying that it's irrelevant. I'm just saying, isn't it good for you to take a time out where you just sort of shut all that out? You put it out on hold. You say, I want to look to Jesus and consider who he is and what he did for me. That's what God wants for you. There's something empowering. There's something healing. There's something transforming. As we just say, I want to look to Jesus and consider him. And that is exactly what the culture and what the devil. Yes, I said the devil because I believe the Bible teaches that there is a malevolent spiritual being who opposes us and God's work in the world. The culture and the devil do not want you to consider. They don't want you to think about Jesus. They don't want you to meditate on who he is and what he's done for you. No, what the culture and what the devil just tell us is don't consider. Just feel, 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 emote, emote, emote. But don't stop and think and consider what God wants you to do is to just slow it down for a minute and say, Jesus, who are you? What have you done for me? And we do that together here on a Sunday morning. And I believe God blesses it. I believe that's one of the things why God blesses it. And even as imperfectly as you and I might do it because it imperfect, right? I mean, just since the time I've started speaking, I don't even want to know how many times your thoughts have been interrupted with something else that you have to do. I mean, you all look so sweet and attentive, and I appreciate that so much. But I know how the wheels turn in the head, it just works like that. But as much as we can, we just want to focus in on Jesus and consider him the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Now, as we're considering Jesus, we're going to find out some things about him. One thing we'll find out, verse 2 tells us, is that he's faithful. Look at it now in verse 2. He says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. Now, This begins a section where he's going to start drawing a little bit of a comparison between Jesus and Moses. And you can see why this was so important for these first century Christians who came from a Jewish background. They needed to understand Moses in his proper place and Jesus in his proper place. But I want you to notice the first thing he points out about Jesus in verse two was that Jesus was faithful who was faithful. And when we consider the past faithfulness of Jesus, it makes us understand that he's going to continue to be faithful to us, even unto the end. Jesus was perfectly faithful to God, the father. And we can take based on that. He's going to be perfectly faithful to you and I. I want you to think about how faithful Jesus was in his entire life. He was faithful as a child being so obedient to his parents. He was faithful as a youth working as a carpenter. He was faithful at the beginning of his ministry to submit to baptism. He was faithful to stay pure in the face of every temptation. He was faithful to face all sorts of opposition. He was faithful to teach and to train all of his disciples. He was faithful to offer repentance and restoration even to Judas. Judas refused it, but Jesus offered it to him. He was faithful to undertake the agony of the cross. He was faithful to take care of his mother, even at the end. He was faithful to rise from the dead, just as he promised to do. And he will be faithful to his people, even unto the end. Isn't it a beautiful thing for us just to look up and say, Jesus is so faithful. And why I think this is so important for us to remember today is because we live in an age of such utter unfaithfulness, Isn't that such a hallmark of our current age that people don't stick to commitments or stick to contracts or stick to relationships unless they can see what's immediately good for them at the moment? How rare it is in the world today to have people just say, I'm going to be faithful to this, even though it's not so pleasant for me in the moment. And we need to lift up Jesus in all of his faithfulness. We live in an age, we live in a generation that I think is crying out for examples of real faithfulness and we can point out Jesus to them and say, you know what, he's not like the celebrity who bounces around life like a pinball in a pinball machine. I just use an illustration realizing that maybe everybody under 20 years old doesn't even understand what a pinball machine is. (laughs) Be that as it may, it bounces around a lot, okay? Put it that way. They need to know that Jesus is faithful, even though, you know, our heroes in the athletic world or in the celebrity world, that none of them are stable. None of them faithful. marriages crash all around us, but say, no, no, Jesus, you are faithful. And isn't it important for us to demonstrate in our own lives that God works that faithfulness in his people? I don't even think, you know, what a powerful testimony it is for you to simply remain faithful. To remain faithful to the bonds of marriage. To remain faithful in the situation that God has given you. To to not be something who just cuts rope as soon as it's to your advantage to do. But to demonstrate by your life and by your character, you are a person who is faithful. And Jesus Christ has worked that within you. Isn't that a beautiful testimony for you to give to this world? I feel so bad for young people growing up in the world today. Because people growing up in the world today, I think that they get a message from the culture. It's very sad if they ever get this message from the church, but I suppose sometimes they do. But they get this message from the culture that basically says you are a slave to your bodily appetites. Whatever your body tells you to do, do it. If it tells you to do something that's sexual, who cares about what God or anybody else says about it? Do it because your body's in control. We live in an age where whatever you do with drugs and alcohol, you don't think about it. You just do it. You just feel. You just do. And we are slaves to our bodies. How important it is for there to be a generation of men and women who can stand up in the present age and say, you know what? God helping me, I am not a slave to the appetites of my own body. Do you know what a depressing thing that is to realize that I might be a slave to the appetites of my body? But to say, no, God helping me, the Holy Spirit filling me, I can be an example of faithfulness in this world. I can't be an example of perfection. That boat has sailed a long time ago. But in my present circumstances, God helping me, I can be faithful. And so can you. So we're supposed to consider Jesus. We're supposed to look at him and how faithful he was as Moses was also faithful in all his house. Now, again, as I said before, this is going to begin a section where Jesus uh, where Jesus is compared to Moses. And for you and I would we go, well, yeah, I know Jesus is greater than Moses. But no, no, no. Remind yourself of the context of these first century readers of this letter. They were being tempted to go back into what I might call a Messiah-less Judaism. It wasn't that they were being tempted to go away from Judaism. You and I would look at this and say, if you believe that Jesus is your Messiah, you fulfill your Judaism. You don't deny it, you fulfill it. But what they were being tempted was to be going back into a Messiah-less Judaism that would put much more emphasis upon Moses than it would be put upon the Messiah that God, the father sent from heaven. And so he feels it needs to demonstrate that Jesus is greater than Moses. And please understand, this isn't anti Moses. This isn't no Moses is bad and Jesus is good. No, it's that Moses was a great man. But Jesus, Jesus is different altogether, being the son of God. And you'll see how he makes this point in verse three. Take a look at that with me. He says, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Well, isn't that just true? I mean, Jesus receives more glory than Moses. Well, first of all, it's just a fact. Now, again, this is not the anti-Moses society. We understand that Moses was a wonderful man whom God brought much honor and glory to. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai and when his face shone with the radiance of God, was that not God glorifying Moses in some way? Did not Moses receive glory there? When Moses's own brother and sister, um, Aaron and Miriam, rebelled against him and tried to sort of do a power play on Moses, God glorified Moses and pointed out and said, Moses is my guy. And then later on in the book of Numbers, it tells us that when um, Moses was opposed by some people called the sons of Korah, who wanted to take authority over Moses, God made it very clear, Moses is my guy. And you could say that God brought glory to Moses by choosing that Moses was his guy and the sons of Korah were not. By the way, does anybody remember how God demonstrated that the sons of Korah were not his guys? Well, I'll just tell you real quick. He opened up the ground and swallowed them up. That's a pretty dramatic way to prove you're not my guys. But he glorified Moses by saying, you are my guy. So we're not trying to say that Moses didn't receive glory. We're just trying to say that Jesus received so much more glory because as great as Moses was, he never experienced what Jesus did when Jesus was baptized and God, the father spoke audibly from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He never said that of Moses. And even though Moses was a man who received a lot of glory, he was never transfigured. It exalted the way that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, even though Moses was with Jesus. Yet Jesus was lifted up above Moses and Elijah on that occasion. But especially so, Moses died. And he was not immediately resurrected from the dead in the same way that Jesus was. It was in this way that God showed that Jesus Christ has more glory than Moses. And then he uses this illustration of the house. He says that that Moses was a member of the household of God. But Jesus is the creator of that house, worthy of greater glory. I mean, does not that just make sense? That it's one thing to live in the house. And, you know, that's great. It's another thing to build and to design the house that shows more greatness. I mean, I'm pretty good at living in a house. I can do that. But building a house, please, you don't want that from me. But again, it shows the greatness of Jesus greater than Moses. And this is the theme he's going to continue on, starting out verse four through the end of our passage that we're going to consider this morning, verses four, five and six, where he says this, for every house is built by someone but he who built all things is God and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. I love those three verses that conclude our section. I love how it starts. Did you notice that in verse four? And this is a little tangential point, but to me, it's of great interest. He says right there in verse four, every house is built by someone. Doesn't that seem like the most obvious thing in the world to you? Every house is built by someone. You drive by a house and whether it's a humble house or whether it's a great house, you look, you go, somebody built that house. I mean, it's so obvious you don't even talk about it. But isn't it funny that especially in our modern age, people deny this most obvious truth about our universe. They'll look around at the universe and they'll act like it's a house that nobody built. They, here you are, you have the sun and the moon and the stars down to the most intricate cell that reproduces here on earth and all the complexity and all the information and all the design that is necessary to do it. And they go, wow, isn't it amazing that it just happened? That that house, so to speak, Built itself. Well, isn't it? Well, you get the point, don't you? It's just a very strange thing that people could think that could deny this most elementary principle. Every house is built by someone. Now, obviously, the writer of the Hebrews isn't thinking of a literal house that someone would live in, but he's talking about the household of God that we all live in. And Moses was part of that house, but Jesus built that house. And in verse 5, he says that Moses indeed was faithful in all the houses, a servant. Verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house. We think of this great household of God, and Moses was a great servant in that house. Thank you, God, for what you gave to us through your servant, Moses. He's a wonderful servant. But friends, there's a great big difference between a servant and a son. Jesus is the son who made the house and who rules over it. He's not just another servant or resident of the house. Now, knowing all that, knowing the greatness of Jesus and how he's superior even to a great man like Moses, what does that encourage us to do? Well, if we are part of that house, look at it here in verse six. Whose house we are, if we hold fast. We are invited to join the house of Jesus, the community of the Messiah, if we hold fast. I think about it's possible today. I might be speaking to somebody right now this morning. And and you would say and, you know, you, you would just be honest and say, okay, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ. I've come here this morning because maybe somebody I care about has brought me here. Maybe I just wandered in. Maybe I thought I was going to Costco or something. I don't know. You're just here. And you say, no, it's not me yet. I'm not part of this yet. Here's it. You can be part of this. You can be part of this great household. I mean, it's for you, too. Now, you you have to make a decision to come. Did you notice how he said he phrased it so powerfully there? He says right here whose house we are. If we hold fast, you have to come with a dedication, say, Jesus, I want to come into your household and play by your house rules. And I will live in your community here. Now, the door is wide open to you. On the one hand, it's an exclusionary thing because it's a house and some people are in the house and some people are outside of the house. But let me put it this way. The people who are on outside of the house, it's because they chose to be on the outside of the house. Now, if you're on the outside of the house, don't complain that you're not on the inside. And all the benefits of being on the inside of the house are there for you. But you need to come into it. It's yours, but you don't come into it with a light commitment. Notice this whose house we are. If we hold fast, if you notice the very end of the verse, he says, verse six, he says, if we hold fast to the end you come to Jesus Christ, you come to give your life to him. And I'll tell you how it works. It's a lifelong commitment. That's how you do it. Now, there's a sense in which every day all over again, we decide to follow Jesus. Do you know how that works? I mean, it really is like that, isn't it? Every day all over again. But what it is, is it's a decision you say with the intention that this will be my life given to you, Jesus. I'm not just uh, signing on for some fire insurance so that you can save my soul from hell. No, I'm coming to dwell in your house and to live under your house rules. Now, here's the benefit of it. Notice here, verse six, I'll read it again. Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence. We're to hold fast the confidence. In other words, the idea is that we can be genuinely confident in our faith. We know that what we believe isn't just wishful thinking, but it's founded on genuine fact and reason that Jesus Christ really did live and walk this earth and that he really did die on a cross and that he really did raise from the dead. And out of those historical facts flow the implications for everything we are and everything that God calls us to be in the Christian life. And you can have confidence in that. I think this is very needful in the present age. Because there are many people in the world today who would love to shake the confidence that you have in following Jesus Christ. That They want to make you feel unconfident. They want to make you feel that what you believe is just sort of your own personal fantasy or, 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 or opinion. But it isn't really founded on fact. You can't really have confidence in what you believe. But he told you to hold fast the confidence. Listen, with all the people that come up today to oppose the message of the Bible and Jesus Christ and the message of the Christian faith, I read them. I read, I listen to the new atheists. I read and listen to the new skeptics, the new people. Oh, they write the books, they publish the articles, they make the videos, they do all this stuff. Yes, they are going to do it. And you know what? I I don't know if this speaks well of me, but I'll just say, this. you know what my immediate reaction is to those guys? How? boring. I mean, it really is. They're just bringing up the same arguments that have been brought up and adequately answered for hundreds of years. And they think, no, no, no. Now we're going to put the final nails in the coffin of Christianity. You just watch Christianity is going to pass from the scene. Do you realize that they've been saying that for 2000 years and we're not dead yet? Matter of fact, I'm telling you right now that in the present day and age, right now, there are more people who are followers of Jesus Christ and believe in God and His Word than ever before. Ever before? I mean, look, it's, I don't mean to sound like I'm gloating or anything, even though maybe I can't gloat just a little bit in this. I'm not trying to sound like I'm gloating, but the message to the new atheists and skeptics is, we're winning, you're losing. I mean, the tide is against you. And I know, I know maybe in sincerity, you feel like we're going to defeat this and it's good, but it's just not working. It's not because actually every argument you bring up is tired. It's old. It's boring. It's been answered long before. And just because it's new to you doesn't mean that it's been new. But you I find that there are Christians who lose their confidence. They lose their confidence when they discover that living the Christian life is sometimes difficult and friends, it is. They lose their confidence when they realize that actually a big part of the Christian life is death to self. Can I just say that's not a real big selling point if you're trying to persuade people to be followers of Jesus. But it's the truth, isn't it? A large part of following Jesus Christ is this idea that the Bible speaks about about dying to self. That we don't live for our own desires, our own dreams, and just expect Jesus to fulfill our best life. No, no, rather, we surrender our lives to him. And we simply say, Jesus, we belong to you. But there's also people who lose their confidence, I think, in the modern day and age. Because when they start getting out in the world where they can experience more sophisticated sins, this is what they find out. They find out that sin is fun. I hope I didn't reveal something to you that you didn't know before. You know what? Sin can be fun. Sin can be very popular. Now, it, it is in many cases short term fun that ends up to long term destruction of life. It's never good in the long term. But as the Bible says, sin can be sweet for a season. And sometimes when people taste the sweetness of that initial season of sin, they go, wow, this is great. And no thunderbolt came down from the sky and destroyed me when I sinned in this way. I'm just going to go and do it then. And they lose their confidence in the truth of God. I'll tell you one other place that, that many people lose their confidence in. They lose their confidence. And you'll find this oftentimes with young people who go off to college or university. They're for the first time confronted with really smart people who don't believe the way that they do. And they think, well, wow, it must be true. They're really smart. Look, I'll just let the cat out of the bag right now. There are some really smart people who reject Christianity. Now, I'd like to say that if you look over the pages of history, you'll find that also some of the most brilliant men and women who have ever walked this earth have believed in Jesus and trusted in the Bible completely. But you go out in the world today and you'll find you'll find very bright people who reject you. Don't let that shake your confidence just because they're bright in one area doesn't mean that they have spiritual knowledge or spiritual insight. But I want you to notice this as well. And we'll sort of wrap up with this. Notice it in verse six, that it doesn't just say that we hold fast the confidence, but we also hold fast the rejoicing of hope to the end. Friends, it's kind of heavy on my heart. Because not only do I want you to hold fast to confidence, I want you to hold fast to the rejoicing of hope to the end. In other words, there's some people who just seem to lose their joy, their happiness in living the Christian life. Living the Christian life becomes for you sort of a tired routine. You know, that that may be you this morning. And and again, I, I don't take it personally. But for some of you, being here right now might be a tired routine for you. If that's you, I don't condemn you. But my heart goes out to you and I say, look at who Jesus is and how great he is. And when your mind is filled with that, with considering Jesus, you will look to that and you will say, yes, I have rejoicing in hope to the end. This is good. This is great. And it's a wonderful thing to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But yet sometimes people get shaken from that. They get shaken from it because the, 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 the prayer they understand or they come to find. It's not always answered. Yes, or it's not always answered right away. They look around and there's other people who fall away. They see that sin really messes things up in people's lives. And it does, doesn't it? They see that this life can be tougher than they ever thought before. And those kind of things make people sometimes lose that rejoicing of hope to the end. I've just got a word for you now. You can have it back. The Christian life can be a joyful, happy thing for you again. But right now, just say, Lord, I want to hold fast. Now, this whole thing of holding fast is so important to us that we've sort of made it our whole theme here through the book of Hebrews, because it's a theme that resonates throughout the whole book of Hebrews. But this hold fast really can be understood in two ways. The one way is that Jesus is reaching down and holding fast onto us. And aren't we thankful for that, that he has his grip on us? And sometimes we need to hear that. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we think that we're being pushed out of the household of God and say, no, he's holding fast onto you. I want you to know it. He is holding fast onto you. But, but it doesn't negate the truth that you and I, we need to hold fast onto him. And so we do it both, don't we? Yes, Jesus, thank you for holding on to me. But in response, I want to hold fast onto you. And the Holy Spirit helping me, helping you, We'll do it. I'm going to conclude with prayer right now. And in just a moment, we're going to have more time of worship, more time to consider Jesus together in worship. And then Nate's going to come on up and invite up the prayer team. When he invites up the prayer team, I want to give a special exhortation right now for those of you who have lost this rejoicing of hope in your Christian life. Now, you're welcome to come up and pray for anything, of course. But you know what? There's some here. I'm absolutely convinced of it. You just need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit right here, right now. That's what you need. You need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to give you that ability to hold fast to that rejoicing of hope to the end. Father, that's my prayer. And I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit upon us now. Now is in a time of worship. As we have our time together now in response to this message, we want to consider Jesus in these moments of worship. And we pray that this consideration of Jesus, that this thinking of him would have a transforming effect, Lord, giving us confidence in you and helping us to rejoice in hope to the end. Help us, God, now to hold fast unto you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.